The loudest. The biggest. The brashest. New York is its own character in every play. The bad thing about New York is the pressure. You're always under pressure. Here are the stories about those plays. It's New York Accent with Damon Amendolaro. Yeah, I just remember a lot of my first game in New York in 86. Uh, I was on the mound the night they clinched the uh, NL East. You know, I think it was my second or third start of my career. And to go there and to pitch in that atmosphere, you know, being 20 years old, I was pretty spooked. I mean, it was a pretty scary night for me that night. Yeah. I was definitely intimidated. Greg Maddox was Picasso with a curveball. He won 355 games, had more than 3,000 strikeouts, won four straight Cy Youngs, and did it all at the height of the steroid era without a dominant fastball. Maddox could paint the corners, make the off-speed stuff dance, and let you think you're going to hit this one a country mile before pulling the string and inducing you into a measly ground ball to second. He broke into the league in 1986 and dominated the 1990s. He was a master craftsman in a league of over-muscled and flame-throwing superheroes. He was the thinking man's pitcher and had more than a few lab sessions in New York. He tangled with the Yankees in two World Series, 1996 and 1999. And against the Mets, oh boy, the Mets. He made a career off the Mets. The Braves dominated the division for a decade and a half, and the Amazons tried and tried and tried to knock him off. But Maddox had more wins, strikeouts, and a lower batting average against him than any other opponent. Sigh. He was also on the mound on the lawless night the Mets clinched the 86 NL East. Oh, and that offseason, he was an enormous free agent and made the splash with the Braves. He was almost in pinstripes. This is Greg Maddox's New York accent. Greg, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. You were always known for precision, accuracy, manipulation of the baseball without having to overpower guys. And you grew up as part of a military family. And I'm wondering, <laughs> did that upbringing on Air Force bases around the military, did that lead to an attention to detail or discipline with, with the small stuff? Well, I think what it did for us was uh, everybody in the neighborhood, we were all in the, you know, we were all in the same boat, you know, and uh, we also spent time over in Spain, so we didn't have TV. Uh, we were always outside playing sports. Uh, you know, my brother and all the other neighborhood kids, it, it seemed like whatever time of the year it was, we were playing, you know, baseball, basketball, and football. So uh, uh, we didn't spend a lot of time in the house growing up. We were, we were always outside, you know, just playing sports. I think that what? had more to do with it than anything, really. Yeah, that's interesting. And a lot of people from that generation, even my generation, I'm slightly younger than you, would say the same thing. That versatility of, of playing sports, a lot of different sports, instead of just isolating one sport, tends to help you out, be an overall athlete, and, and help you. And baseball certainly was the track for you. You had a pitching coach named Dick Pohl who said, you don't have to strike anybody out. You just have to get them out. Yeah, and I wonder, I wonder if, if you ever shrugged your shoulders or raise your eyebrows at guys that just went in there just wanting to strike people out. <laughs> I think that's what a lot of the guys try to do now. It's all about preventing contact as opposed to pitching the contact. Uh, uh, I was taught to try to keep the ball in front of the outfield, and I think a lot of the pitchers today are taught to make them swing and miss. So, uh, you know, the philosophies change over time, and there there are some pitchers around now here that still do kind of pitch to contact, weak contact, obviously. Uh, 
trust me, I'd rather strike a guy out than get a ground ball. I mean, I'm no different than everybody else, but I realized that, uh, you know, a 300 foot opposite field fly balls and out, you know, an outs and out. Well, so does that come down to ego, a pitcher's desire to strike somebody out to overpower the, the opponent? Because as you just said, I mean, you could throw one pitch and get a guy out with a long fly ball, but it takes three pitches to strike a guy out. Is is that about ego? Well, I think it's about stuff, really. I think uh, the, the better your stuff is, the deeper in counts you're going to go, the more foul balls you're going to get. You know, I know Smoltzy used to get mad all the time because if he wanted a complete game, he had to throw 125, 130 pitches. And it seemed like me and Glad were doing it around the 100 pitch mark. So I think, uh, uh, you know, like, I mentioned to him 20 years ago, you know, hey, if 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 you want to throw less pitches, you got to throw slower. So when they swing, they hit it fair. You know, it's funny because in the world that you pitched, the 90s, the 2000s, it's slugging, it's home run shattering records, it's huge sluggers, and of course, the long ball. So you always felt to be built from a different mold, cut from a different cloth, maybe a different era. Did you ever feel like an anomaly in the sport in which you were dominating? Uh, not really. You know, I, I just know there were a lot of pitchers that pitched like me. You know, I know when I was first coming up, there was Oral Horsheiser, and I thought our fastballs kind of matched up pretty much the same. So I watched a lot of what he did on the mound. And, and you know, he kind of did it with movement and location, changing speeds and uh mike morgan i don't know if you remember him or not but we had sure. the same type fastball and uh we also learned from the same teacher back in high school as well so uh you know we learned movement was more important than velocity we learned location and changing speeds was more important than velocity uh you know we were going to throw hard enough to get drafted but to have success we were taught you know at a very young age to have success in the big leagues you're going to have to be able to to locate with movement and change speeds. Life changes for you in 1992. You were a very productive pitcher for the Cubs, but that year you were dominant, 20 and 11 with a 2.18 ERA. It was mind blowing at the time, and you become a free agent. And so now there's a free agent frenzy for you. For that moment when you thoroughly kind of came into your own, did you feel like you had advanced a certain a certain step in your career that that 92 season was so good? Did you feel like you were maybe a different pitcher than you were the previous seasons? Well, I was. I uh, added a cut fastball. You know, I could sink it. I could run it away from the lefties into the righties, but I could never move it to the other side. So I was able to pitch to to cut it and sink it, and I think uh, that made a huge difference for me. I think Billy Connors was my pitching coach that, that taught me the cutter, and uh, it made a huge difference because now I was able to start the ball down the middle and have it end up on both sides of the plate. It's that offseason where there's a huge decision in your career. Where do you sign? There's a lot of teams that are really interested in you. You do take a trip to Yankee Stadium. You do visit with the Yankees. Tell me about what you remember from that day. Well, I remember going to New York thinking I was going there to sign a contract. And uh, uh, Gene Michaels, I believe, was the general manager at the time. And uh, uh, Mr. Steinbrenner was suspended from baseball, so I had no contact with him. And I was mostly talking with Gene and, uh, you know, I found out like years later, the reason I didn't get offered a contract was somebody high up in the, in the organization had some heart problems that night and they had to put everything on hold. And, 
uh, I ended up going to going back to Vegas the next morning and the Braves stepped in the next day. And, uh, you know, being from the national league, I wanted to stay in the national league. I wanted to win a world series. And, you know, we're talking after the 92 season and the Braves had been to the two previous world series and, uh, the Yankees weren't quite there yet. They were a couple years away from their dominant run that they took in the, the mid to that mid to late nineties. And, uh, uh, yeah, it just matched up well for me at the time to go stay in the National League and, and go to Atlanta. It's one of the great what-ifs in baseball history. Of course, the Yankees go on to build the dynasty as well, and, and the Braves are one of the elite teams in baseball. If you got an offer from the Yankees, do you think you would have signed it? Well, I'm, yeah, I mean, obviously. I mean, I didn't get on a plane from Vegas and go all the way to New York to uh, – go see a Broadway show. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> and I true. was going there to, you know, I was going there for more than just Miss Saigon, you know, no. <laughs> you know, things didn't happen. And, uh, you know, it all worked out great though. No regrets, no what ifs, you know, none of that stuff. Uh, uh, had 11 great years in Atlanta, met a lot of good people, got a chance to play with, you know, Smoltzy and Glav and, and, uh, developed friendships over the years there. And, uh, you know, no regrets. Worked out great. 93, you guys get to the NLCS, but the Phillies knock you off. 94, there is no World Series or postseason. Mm -hmm. 95, you do get back to the World Series, and you guys win that championship. What is that moment like after all the years of coming close to finally hang that banner for the Braves and get yourself a World Series? Well, I mean, for me personally, it was a highlight of my career. I mean, uh, you do play for rings. You do play to win the World Series. You know, there's there's a lot of reasons to play this game, but uh, – the number one reason is to win a championship and uh, was fortunate enough to do that. Uh, you know, looking back, yeah, could we have won three or four or five like the Yankees did? Absolutely. But uh, we didn't. No regrets. We, we we did win our division, I think, was it 14 straight years in a row? Yep. I was there for 11 of them and uh, very proud of that accomplishment. But it'd be nice to have a few more rings. But we do have one. That year is just an eye-popping year for you. You have a 1.63 ERA when the league average is 4.23. That's even more dominant compared to your peers than what Bob Gibson did in 1968. It is one of the great historical pitching seasons of all time in an era where clearly sluggers are doing some chemically enhanced stuff and offense is, is starting to explode. When you look back at what you did in 95, does it even surprise you? Well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you, you never really feel like you're going to go on a run like that. But, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, I just remember going through that year and it was just sticking to the process and it really was one pitch at a time, you know, well, uh, that's simple. Hang on a sec. No problem. <laughs> All right. Sorry about that. <laughs> that's okay. The, the dogs are going crazy, huh? They're at speeding time. I think the wife's in there giving them their food, and they're all fired up. So Right on. But, yeah, yeah, you were just saying that you were just in a groove in 95, huh? Yeah, just, you know, you, you know you're having fun. Things are rolling, and, uh, you know, offense always seemed to score enough runs to win. And, you know, we had uh, Raphael for call and Andrew Jones and all those guys behind us. I mean, we had the best defense in the National League, in both leagues, really. And, uh, you know, our pitchers, they, they, they made us look a lot better than we actually were some nights. <laughs> well, 
you're being modest, but that's boy, that season was just incredible for the the Atlanta Braves. You guys would get back to the World Series in 1996, and you have a chance to pitch at Yankee Stadium in Game Six. Now you guys have your backs up against the wall. Ultimately, the Yankees would clinch their first World Series championship since 1978 that night of the Bronx. What was that experience for you like in Game Six of that series? Well, it wasn't very good because we lost, but I mean, it was you know. Uh... I think I remember Joe Girardi had a man on third and one out and hit a big triple. And I think that was kind of the uh, the big hit that kind of started the night for the Yankees. I think Charlie Hayes caught a pop-up down the third baseline. I You're think exactly I remember right. that. Yep. Uh, you know, but I know uh, as a player, it was pretty special going to New York and pitching in the World Series. You know, obviously would have loved to have won the game. But it's one of those experiences you, you you can't trade in for anything. It was pretty special to go there and compete in the World Series in Yankee Stadium with all the history and that. And that was before interleague, so you know we weren't familiar with anything that had to do with uh, the American League or the you know going to Yankee Stadium. There is the Game Four turning point of the series where it looks like you guys could go up three games to one. You have a big lead, and then there's the Jim Lairich home run that lives in lore for the Yankees. Do you think back to that game and and feel like you guys let it slip away, and and that that was a chance for you guys to go back to back? Yeah, that was that. Yeah, that was a uh, that was a big turning point. I think we were up six to one or two in that game, you know, and uh, they did a lot to catch up before the home run was actually hit. I know. Uh, you know, I, I know Waller's, I personally thought he threw the right pitch. I think if he gets the slider down, he swings and misses it, you know. So I, I didn't have a problem with the pitch selection. Uh, but it was definitely a big hit. It was a big turning point. And, uh, you know, to win the first two in Yankee Stadium and then to get swept after that was kind of tough to swallow. During this era, you and the Mets are going back and forth in, a, in the National League East. And really, you guys are the older brothers. They're the younger brothers. Chipper Jones is just owning them. Your pitching staff in huge spots keeps owning them. And your stats at the end of your career, you had more starts against the Mets than any team. You had the most wins against them than any other team. You had 66 starts against New York, 35 wins. You also had 13 complete games, the most out of any opponent as well. And one of your lowest opposing batting averages, 243. Sounds like you enjoyed playing in the Mets during your Braves tenure, huh? Yeah, I didn't realize I faced him that many times too. You just brought that up. I knew I faced him a lot because, you know, they were in both divisions when I was in Chicago and then back in Atlanta. So I know I was in New York a lot. And, uh, uh, you know, I just remember a lot my first game in New York in 86. Uh, I was on the mound the night they clinched the uh, NL East. And, uh, you know, I think it was my second or third start of my career. And to go there and to pitch in that atmosphere, you know, being 20 years old, I was pretty spooked. I mean, it was a pretty scary night for me that night. Yeah. I was definitely intimidated. And, uh, uh, you know, Howard Johnson and Daryl Strawberry and all the guys they had on their team back then, Dwight Gooden and Sid Fernandez and, and all those guys. Uh, I just remember my first taste in New York was not, you know, was, was, was not very pleasing. And, uh, but, uh, you know, the more times you go to New York, it seems like the more you appreciate the city. Well, it was not a warm and inviting place in 86 because when the Mets clinched that night, the fans come on the field as well. Yeah. Do, you, do you remember the fans streaming on the field after that game? I remember that. I remember everybody jumping on the field and calling us names in the dugout and you know, rubbing <laughs> it in and all that. And they were 
picking up turf and all that. I think, uh, I think after that, they started bringing out the police horses, if I'm not mistaken. They would put yeah, the police right. horses on the field to try to control it a little bit. So, uh, but it was pretty cool. It, it was it was something cool to see. In 99, you guys face off against the Mets at the NLCS, and it's the Mets' chance to finally knock you guys off and dethrone you. And unfortunately for Mets fans, you guys get through them again in 99, but not before the Robin Ventura Grand Slam single. And this is a game that, you also pitch it, and it's a wild game. It goes 15 innings, and ultimately there's the Grand Slam single. It's it's a bizarre night. It's a great night. You guys end up winning the NLCS, but do you have memories of that night at Shea Stadium? Uh, I do. I do. Was it raining, too? Why it do I think raining. it was raining it that was. night? It was. It was kind of a light rain, and you went seven yeah. innings and only gave up two runs in that game. Yeah, I think uh... – I think they tied it up late and we kept going extra innings and uh it was a long night and uh, I do remember the uh the walk off single <laughs> or whatever you want to call it uh yeah. but uh yeah I remember we came back and got him the next day so uh all was good. Yep, you guys clinched it in game 6. Okay, so we get to 99 of the 99 World Series, you're back up against the Yankees and in game number 1 you start in Atlanta Turner Field. You are dominant through these first seven innings. You have a one nothing lead into the top of the eighth. And then that Yankees team always just had those small ball innings that could crack the opponent. They were so good at this. Single, walk, sack, bunt, jeter, single. Suddenly it's 1-1, and that's your day is over, your start is over, and ultimately the Yankees win that game 4-1. It must have just been so hard when you face a lineup like that and you know, they're just all so disciplined and had so much experience. What do you remember about that 99 game one start? Well, geez, that's a tough one. Uh, was it El Duque? Was I think it was. Yeah, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was. I just remember that the, the pitching was really good. And and I remember uh ball actually rose. And I, I've never stood in there and actually saw a ball rise before. And uh, uh, I remember that really stood out for me because that was something I never saw before, trying to hit off him. And, uh, you know, I just remember it was a tough game, and uh, we came up a little short. Must have been a bummer considering you guys faced them twice in the World Series and couldn't get past them. Do, does that still sting looking back at it? Uh, I mean, you know, it's it sucks to get swept in four games, obviously, you know. But, uh, you know, you look back and, and you know, you, you kind of hate to take the loser's attitude that, oh, at least we made it to the World Series. I'd rather go to the World Series and lose and not go, but – uh, that's kind of what you say when you get swept and, and, uh, obviously would have liked to have played better that week, but we didn't. That year you film an iconic commercial for Nike with your buddy, Tom Glavin, where you guys are working out of the gym and you're taking cuts of the batting cage and two of the best pitchers of the game say chicks dig the long ball. How often does somebody come up to you and say chicks dig the long ball? Hmm. Well, yeah, it's kind of funny. Uh, act yesterday, as a matter of fact, I heard it. Really? So, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's amazing. You could, uh, you know, you can, you can, you can win a couple Cy Youngs, win a World Series title, but as soon as you do that one commercial, now all of a sudden you're famous. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it was weird the this day, I think I signed. I think I signed about twenty T-shirts the other day that said "Chicks did the long ball." It's unbelievable. Chicks. Nearly twenty-five years later, and that's that's what everybody wants to remember. You got to be like, I won three hundred and fifty games, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, let me just ask you as an overview of your career: which hitter 
did you face that gave you the most difficulty? What was the guy that you said, boy, this this guy, for some reason, I just, that guy always struggled yeah. with that stuff. Well, I think you can pick a team. There's always one or two guys on every team. But, uh, you know, for me personally, I thought Tony Gwynn was probably the best hitter over time that I faced. And uh, Barry Bonds was probably the most respected, you know. Those were two guys that if the situation came up and you couldn't walk them, you know, that's where you didn't want to be. And, uh, you know, Piazza was a very good hitter. I thought Sheffield was really good. Uh, Bagwell, very good. Uh, Vladimir Guerrero later on, I thought he was tough out. You know, it's just uh, there's... I mean, the list can go on and on and on. I mean, if you think long enough. But, uh, you know, there's always seemed to be one or two guys on every team that, you know, you got to try to get 27 outs, and there's these two guys you don't really want to try to pick on too much. Do you ever think about if you would have pitched in a non-steroid era, what what your career would have looked like? Uh, not really. I mean, uh, it was only for a couple years anyway, you know, and – uh you know, I thought I gave up a few steroid homers, but so did everybody else. You know, it was an, it, it was kind of a level playing field. Everybody else was facing the same guys. So, uh, you know, I didn't really feel like it was that big a deal, to be honest with you. You know, I think, uh, you know, it was what it was. And, uh, you know, if you th throw the ball where you want to, they're probably not going to hit it. Did you enjoy that putting green inside Turner Field? I did enjoy the putting green. <laughs> had a lot of fun with that. And, uh I don't know if you know the story behind that or not, but they were uh, doing Turner Field and they had a room that they had no use for. And jokingly, Smoltzy said, you should put in a putting green. And Sherholt said, win the World Series this year and we'll put one in there. And that was in 95. And uh, we won the World Series and next year we opened up Turner Field and we had a putting green in there. Is that one of those things where you clinch the World Series, you're dumping champagne at each other, and then eventually somebody goes, yeah, now we got that putting green. Or do you <laughs> or do you show up in spring training in 96 or right before the season begins, and you see the putting green and go, oh, that's right, they promised us this. Yeah, it's definitely the latter. Okay. You know, we walked into the new clubhouse checking it out, and then we saw the putting green, and, and it had a nice uh, picture on the wall of uh, – 12 at Augusta, the short part three with the flowers in the background and everything. So it was, it was, uh, it was, a it was pretty cool. How particular were you guys of inviting a fourth into your round of 18? You guys were all amazing golfers. I can't imagine anybody that just was a hacker was invited into your foursome. Well, I mean, we played with however many we had. I mean, uh, you know, it, a lot of it, you know, Smoltzy always had the tee time, obviously. So, you know, if I was pitching, I didn't play. If Glad was pitching, he didn't play. Uh, you know, Avery and Merker were in there. The trainers were in there. Uh, Traveling secretary was in there on occasion. So it just kind of uh, whatever was available and, and whatever, you know, however many spots were available and whoever was available, it, it always seemed to work out that way. Do you have a hole-in-one in your career? I actually, yeah, I have six. Six of them. Wow. I have six, and it's been a while. Uh, that should be on your brother, Facebook reference page. My <laughs> brother just made his 10th in spring training this year. Is that right? Oh, yeah. my goodness. So, ten, uh, 10 aces. Yeah. So, we, we, you know, we, we like to brag and say, yeah, we got 16 hole-in-ones in the family and, and one World Series ring. Have you ever gotten to play Augusta? I've been lucky enough to play it a couple times. Wow. That must be amazing, uh, huh? Really is. Really yeah. a special day. Uh, great experience. 
Well, you are a part of the Invited Celebrity Classic coming up on April the 21st, 22nd, and 23rd from Las Colinas Country Club in Irving, Texas, where there's going to be PGA Tour champs, Hall of Fame athletes, entertainment stars as well, guys from all different walks of life and all different sports. It's going to be on Golf Channel all three days, and also tickets are free for fans, which is so cool. You can go to invitedcelebrityclassic.com. This is a great event. We've had a couple of the guys on the show that have been part of this event before, and they always love it. Do you enjoy it? Oh, it's a blast. It's fantasy golf for me. I mean, these are the guys I grew up watching play golf. So, you know, to... You know, last year I got a chance to play with Corey Pavin and Duffy Waldorf and Scott Perrell, who ended up winning the tournament last year. So, uh, you know, for me, it's a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, you're teeing off on on one hole and right behind you is John Daly. It's pretty cool. So, I mean, uh, you know, I've always been a golf junkie and uh, always admired what those guys can do on the course. And to actually go out and watch them, you know, make a living and and be inside the ropes with those guys is pretty cool. Have you ever thought about maybe five or six Diet Cokes in a carton of cigarettes like John Daly does? Because it seems to help him out. Yeah, it could work. Matt, calm my nerves down, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> but it is cool because it's Ernie Els, Ratif Goose, and Bernard Langer. There's so many big-time champions, and then there's all athletes from your era and, and other eras as well. It's got to be a pretty cool bonding experience with with just the whole vibe of, of the event. Yeah, it really is. It really is. We'll tell you where it's cool is in the clubhouse. When you're sitting in the clubhouse and you get a chance to to uh, uh, talk to the football players and the basketball players and all that stuff, it's pretty cool. Tickets are free for fans to go. This is such a cool thing. InvitedCelebrityClassic.com. The vibe out there is always great. It's at Las Colinas Country Club in Irving, Texas, coming up April the 21st, 22nd, and 23rd. If you can't get there, all three days are on the Golf Channel. Greg, you've been more than generous with your time today. Thank you so much. Hit them straight, and I really appreciate the time that you spent with us this afternoon. All right. Thanks for having me. Appreciate My it. My pleasure. What a cool conversation with one of the greats of all time. Boy, Greg Maddox was – he was such a unique guy for his era, such a unicorn. I mean, when you think about his dominant seasons, it was really – the early through late 90s. So it was like 92 through, let's say, 98 or something like that. And for Greg Maddox, you know, he was very modest in the conversation, suggesting that, well, everybody gave up steroid home runs, and there were players in every team that, that gave me trouble. But let's be real. The man won 355 games. The bulk of them happened during the decade of steroids, or at least one of the decades of steroids. He played in a National League that had Barry Bonds in it and Mark McGuire in it and Sammy Sosa in it. And he did it without a dominant fastball. Somehow, Greg Maddox really accomplished the impossible. He dominated a league in a sport where steroids, power, and strength were all over the place to an illegal degree. I mean, Greg Maddox had an underwhelming fastball, but it was his movement, it was his placement, it was his knowledge of setting up a hitter. It was so much about feel and touch in a power sport. And I just, I find it remarkable. I mean, he was such an everyman. He wasn't ripped he wasn't strong he wasn't huge he didn't have a rocket arm 
He just looked like almost anybody could go out there like a tax accountant or something like this and, you know, win 21 games and have a sub-2 ERA in the steroid era. It's just, it's to me, really mind-boggling. And, you know, Maddox had really epic games and series against New York teams. I mean, we mentioned the 1996 and 1999 World Series. Both of those World Series, the Braves were the better team on paper. Both of those series, the Braves in 96 had the experience that they had just won in 1995. And as he had just mentioned, they took two at Yankee Stadium to open up the series. And then it looked like they were going to be up 3-1 and roll to their second back-to-back championship. And instead, everything changed, and they never won again. And then it it closed out at Yankee Stadium. And so that one had to be a heartbreaker for the Braves. They could have put themselves in that rarefied air of back-to-back. And then in 99, that was already for the Yankees. They had won in 96 and 98, so that was their third championship in four years. But that season, they had 98 wins. The Braves had 103. The Braves, again on paper, were the dominant team, and the Yankees just had the October guts. The Yankees just had the October wherewithal. They They riddled the Braves. They riddled a lot of teams. But the Braves had so much talent and so much experience and so much close but no cigar, and the Yankees just had their number in those two World Series. And you heard Maddox say it there. I mean, they didn't win a game. Yankees swept in four, a team that won 103 games of the regular season. Amazing. And as for all the battles that he had with the Mets, man, he made a career against the Mets, didn't he? More wins, more complete games. One of the lowest ERAs and one of the lowest batting averages against him out of any opponent that he faced. So he made himself a tidy amount of money, I would think. And and a good portion of that Hall of Fame plaque is due to the wins over the Mets, man. Well, that was a great conversation, and I appreciate Greg Maddox's time. And time now for the emails. You can always send us an email to New York Accent by sending it to nyaccentpod at gmail.com. That's nyaccentpod at gmail.com. This one's from Cece, not Sabathia, who writes in, I was sick this week, so I was re-watching the Once Upon a Time in Queens 30 for 30. It was making me so happy, so I went online to see if Mookie, Mookie Wilson, ever spoke about beating Buckner to the bag, and I found your podcasts. I always thought he would have beaten him too. CC writes in parentheses. I loved listening to this episode, episode one, New York accent. Mookie is such a great guy, my all-time favorite Met, and I'd like to know how I can subscribe to find other episodes. I want to hear what happens when Mookie invites you over for dinner. LOL, I've also heard you on WFN in New York. Well, thanks so much, CC. I'm glad that you asked. Number one, Mookie is a great guy. I mean, you could tell from that interview And he always has a smile on his face. He always has such a cheerful attitude. But that day, he gave me more time than I could have ever asked for. And he was not in a rush, and he was not annoyed. And and I could totally understand if he needed to go. But he had so so many stories to tell, and you could just hear the humility in every single one of those experiences and the appreciation of those experiences. Mookie is one of those guys that really understood – how great it was to to be loved by the fans and to have that place in, in baseball history. So that was really cool. He's a chef now, and so at the end of episode one, he, he asked me, okay, you got to come down to South Carolina and, and 
have one of my meals. And I said, well, what's your favorite meal to cook? He said, you never ask a, a chef that question. I said, oh, okay, I'll come down. I'll eat whichever you got, whatever you got. So if I make it down to South Carolina where he is, I promise you I will bring that bring that detail to the episode of New York Accent. I promise you. But I'm glad you asked how you could subscribe because you could be watching on YouTube every single week. We release this on the WFAN channel on YouTube. So go there. WFAN and just hit subscribe on the YouTube side of things or on your normal podcast feed, however it is that you get podcasts. It could be the free Odyssey app. It could be Spotify. It could be Apple Podcasts. It could be Stitcher. It could be anywhere. Just type in New York Accent, and when you see it, boom, hit subscribe. And then every Tuesday, when a new episode's released, it'll be uploaded to your favorite platform. And that's how you can listen. And, and if you'd like to leave a, a review or rate it, that would help other people find it as well, which would be amazing. So, Cece, thanks for the email. You can send an email about any of these episodes by simply writing in at the address nyaccentpod at gmail.com. Well, that'll do it for another episode of New York Accent. We will see you on Tuesday for a brand new episode. Like I said, subscribe. Find it anywhere that you get your podcast, and you can watch it on YouTube as well. And I think Mookie would have beaten to the bag as well. All right, thanks once again for listening, everybody. I will see you on WFAN as well on Saturday afternoons throughout the summer months as we make our way into the heart of baseball season. As long as there's not a Yankee game on a Saturday, I will be there on WFAN as well. You can also find me on weekday mornings on CBS Sports Radio on the national side of things. Until Tuesday, we'll see you next time. This is New York Accent, and this is an original Odyssey podcast series.